Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. We are very lucky uh, to have Sander joining us. Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, and uh, Sander Daniels is one of the co-founders of Thumbtack. Thumbtack is a fascinating company with a fascinating origin story. And we're excited to, to get into it. It's had a lot of ups. It's had downs. And Sander is going to be very candid in his, uh, his explanations uh, to us about, about his business. Uh, he's, he's been a friend of mine for, for many years. But first, uh, you know, he, he does do uh, Thumbtack, but it, it's, I also want to let everyone here know that he is a, a Barry's Bootcamp warrior. Uh, he is just a, an animal, a, a true beast on, on the treadmill. And uh, Sander, first, can you just comment on that? You know, what, what inspires you to do that? How do you do that? How are you handling COVID in a post-Barry's Bootcamp world? You know, Eric, I take every day as it comes. There's <laughs> never, there's never a, a lack of surprise in the world. I love berries. I love doing berries with you. It's just, you know, you got you to challenge yourself to the fullest. Berries, where's, berries is where it's at. So what can I say? Amazing. Uh, with that as a segue, uh, so Sander, you have a unique co-founder origin story. Uh, so you started Thumbtack in what, 2008, 2009? Yep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people here in On Deck, they're looking uh, for co-founders, looking for frameworks on how to think about co-founders. They're also thinking about how to think about startup ideas, which we'll get to next. First, describe Thumbtack, and then describe describe your co-founder origin story and what lessons uh, people can can take from it. What frameworks you'd recommend people think about? Uh, great. Well, first of all, I'm thrilled to be here with all of you. Thanks a million, Eric and team. My respect on deck and everything that you're doing enormously. So huge high five to the organizers here and all of you that are a part of it. Really excited about what you're building. So let me give you a very brief overview first of Thumbtack, just so everybody's baselined, and then we can maybe rewind history a little bit to talk about the origin. Thumbtack. Uh, Thumbtack is a marketplace for local services. So if you need to hire a contractor for your home, a tutor for your kid, a photographer for your wedding, you can find it on our marketplace. We've been around, like Eric mentioned, since 2008, 2009. We have about 600 people uh, across San Francisco, Salt Lake City, and the Philippines. We've raised a bunch of venture capital, for better or for worse, about $450 million over the course of six, seven rounds. We operate across a thousand different categories of service. So home, home maintenance is our biggest category, moving, landscaping, electrical, plumbing. We're probably, however, the third biggest event services in the country behind Wedding Wire and The Knot. So that's all things DJ, catering, photography, videography. Health, beauty, and wellness were probably the biggest personal training marketplace in the, in the country. Massage therapy, tutors, teachers, and lessons and beyond. And then geographically, we mirror population density graph in the United States almost exactly. So LA, New York, Chicago, Houston are our biggest markets, but we're equally penetrating the outskirts of like Savannah, Georgia, as we are downtown San Francisco. So that is Thumbtack at a very high level. Let's rewind back to the origin story. So let me take you back to 2008. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area in Virginia. I felt very lucky for the opportunities I've been given since I was a kid. And I knew that when I got older, I'd want to do something that made an impact. So the first route that took for me was politics, public policy, law. I went to law school. I thought I was going to be in the political world my entire career. While I was there, I kept in touch with a couple friends who had gone a similar route for similar motivations. They were working at the White House at the time. And we got together and we said, well, politics is one way to make a difference, but there's another way, which is technology. So for a year, we had weekly phone calls where we brainstormed ideas of things we could start if successful would create an impact. And we were not set on it being a tech company. We were considering nonprofits, political advocacy organizations. But what we eventually landed on was the idea for Thumbtack. It was clear there was a very real human problem to be solved here for both consumers and even more acutely for service professionals who need to find ways to put money in their pockets, food on the table for their families every, every day. It was also clear there was a big business opportunity. So there were these global marketplaces for products, Amazon, eBay, Alibaba, but there was no global marketplace for services yet. Uh, so that's what we went out to build. It's what we've been building towards since day one. 
And if you think back to that time, it was a very different world than the world you're in today, starting a company in tech. Uh, back then, tech was not part of the cultural zeitgeist. Tech founders were not on the covers of magazines. I was at Yale on the East Coast, and nobody I knew was going to the West Coast to be in tech. Everybody was doing banking, consulting, law. Y Combinator didn't exist, or maybe it had just started that, uh, that same year. There was no real angel community to note. So a lot of the infrastructure that we have today didn't exist back then. So going and doing this was unusual. None of my friends were doing it. And the biggest part of taking this risk was really the social pressure against doing it. When I said I'm going to San Francisco, I'm married, I have a kid, I'm moving out there. My friends thought I was crazy. And my parents, most of all, thought I was idiotic. I was at this prestigious, fancy law firm job making a bunch of cash. And here I said I was going to go do this crazy thing that was never going to succeed with a couple friends. And they thought, like, that's the worst decision I've ever made in my entire life. So anyway, that's a little bit about the origin story. Also happy to dive into kind of the founder relationships and dynamics. But Eric, I'll let you kind of. Yeah. It's interesting because on the co-founder path, you seem to have uh, following, following the sort of uh, traditional advice of, Hey, take your you know buddies who you've known for a long time uh, and, and you know, start a company with them. But on, on the idea path, you seem to have taken the untraditional or non-recommended path, which is, you know, uh, instead of focus on something that you are personally passionate about, or you are feeling the, the problem, you do sort of a sober methodical analysis of a tops down market driven, what's a big opportunity, you know, insert here, let's go do it. So let, let's, let's touch on both of those. And, and maybe let's start with the co-founder. What was it about you three? Um, and I, I think none of you are, are, are developers. Um, what was it about you three that, you know, was a perfect co-founding team slash, and what's your advice to, to others, to people in this room who are thinking about, you know, their co-founders? Should it be people they've known for a long time? How should they think about dating? What is your philosophy on, on co-founders? Great. So let's talk about founders and then ideas. So I feel very lucky every day for uh, the founders that uh, the founding team I got to be a part of with Marco and Jonathan. We're, we're not developers. We took a lot of flack for many years for not being developers. That's one way we bucked the conventional wisdom by being a, a founding tech team with no developer talent. There was a four, There is a fourth founder. Um, he was with the company for 12 or 18 months. He took a leap, moved from DC to SF. He's still one of our good friends, but left the company early. So it's been the uh, other three of us since then. And here's what I'll say. You know, it feels like more than half the half of startups uh, implode from poor founder dynamics. And having been doing this now for a dozen years, uh, I can see why that is. The highs are so high, the lows are so low, and there are so many points along the way at which your pride can take a hit. And your relationship with your founders becomes negative. You start pointing fingers. You feel like you're not doing right by one another. They're not doing right by you. You're not getting your fair slice of the pie. And what I will say is uh, uh, there have been, is, is that we now have a stronger relationship, us three, than any other relationship I have in my entire life, other than my, uh, the one I have with my wife. And that has been a hard labor of love. One thing that we all have in common is that uh, we keep perspective. So we have taken a very long-term outlook to this business. We've said we are taking a multi-decade approach to this business. And so what that has meant in practice is that the day-to-day small things or even week to week, month to month, year to year, small things that get under your skin and can erode that relationship. Having the long-term outlook has helped us see beyond that. And it said like, okay, you know, this month or this year, I'm going to take a hit on my role or whatever I think my fair share of the slice of X is. It's in service of the longer term vision. And I'm not going to be the one to bring down this ship. So the other's are the same way. Jonathan and Marco, they're my brothers. And none of us has ever done anything 
to make us feel like we're undermining each other's trust in one another. We have each other's backs. That's not to say we haven't had our problems. So in the early days, for the first three, four, five years, you know, we were younger. We were early in our careers. We didn't know what our own strengths and weaknesses were. And so each of us thought we could do things and we're good at things that turns out we actually weren't very good at. So we went through a number of rounds of executive coaching and uh, our Series C investors in particular came in and they said, congrats, uh, you've raised a bunch of money. Now it's time to grow up. And for us, that meant two things. First was hiring an exec team. So leaders of all the departments in the company. Uh, and the second thing was hiring executive coaches. And I will never forget when we hired these exec coaches. They came in and they said, okay, Sandra, we have 125 questions survey that asks everything about how you work. Give us the list of 10, 12, 15 people in life who are closest to you. We're going to administer this survey to them and get some data. And so they did that. They got data. They brought me into a room. And if I were ever under any impressions previously about what I was good, not good at, well, then they were entirely shattered during that session. So for me, for me, for example, what they said was, okay, Sandra, the data shows that everybody loves working with you. You are a true culture promoter. You are an incredible organizer and hard worker. You are so optimistic. You're always a cheerleader for the team. However, like 99% of people, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. So you're so optimistic that you speak in superlatives. For you, everything is the greatest or the best thing ever or like the dumbest idea you've ever heard. And because you're speaking that way, nobody trusts anything you say. You have entirely undercut everyone's judgment in you. So I said, holy cow. Uh, so I took that really personally because here I was thinking that uh, this central part of my personality, being fun, funny, a team player, a culture promoter, was my biggest strength. And here the coaches were telling me it was the thing that was hurting me the most. And this is a core part of my personality. So for the next 18 months, I kind of went into my shell and I reprogrammed my personality in the way I speak almost entirely so that when I came out of that, people never knew that about me. Today, I talk to people and they say, oh, like, you're kind of boring. You're reasonable. You're even keeled. I would never imagine that about you. And that's one way in which I personally have identified my strengths and weaknesses and really taken that feedback to heart to grow and mature over time. Marco and Jonathan have had that growth mindset as well and have changed themselves fundamentally through the course of uh, the founding of the team. Where I think founders really get into trouble is um, they don't have a long-term outlook on the business and it becomes more of a transactional relationship. What have you done for me lately? What's been my cut lately? Um, and two, if they're not really self-examining in a serious way and they're not able to hear feedback well and they're not able to take that feedback and change their behaviors and actions to address it, which is one of the hardest things we can all do. Um, so that's a little bit that I'll say about the founder relationship. Let's talk about the idea uh, generation process. Is, is the, the process that you underwent or you described a little bit, and is that a process you recommend to others? So the conventional wisdom around building a startup and coming up with an idea is you need to work on something that you're familiar with, that you know that's a problem for you. The way we went about figuring out the idea for Thumbtack was totally different. Um, we bucked the conventional wisdom. We went after a problem that wasn't a problem we had really. I, you know, I wasn't hiring service professionals back in college. I wasn't a blue collar worker myself. So I didn't know this community at all. What we did instead was more of a consulting style, blue sky brainstorm about, okay, what are the absolute biggest industries out there in the world? And what, which of them seem ripe for disruption are totally inefficient and are ones at the end of the day that we can understand. And you know, the fact of the matter is that like for a smart person with a month of hard work, you can come to, you know, understand an industry in an 80-20 way pretty quickly. So that's not that hard of a hurdle to overcome. So that's what we did. I think too many people 
uh, build problems that are their own problems. And because, you know, a lot of us are, we're the 5% of the 1%, you end up building problems for the 5% of the 1%. I think there's just enormous opportunity to go after problems that the 80% of the world have that you aren't part of. Uh, but, you know, it, it's created an interesting dynamic as we've scaled the company. Our employees at Thumbtack, the 500, 600 employees, like we are not our target demographic. Our target consumer is like your stay-at-home house mom in the Midwest who has a bunch of kids and is the manager of household. And they're hiring, you know, a painter and the electrician and ordering groceries and blah, blah, blah. And our, tar- our target customer on the supply side is the service professional. And these are like, you know, maybe they have a, high sc- uh, a college education. They probably uh, finished high school and they have been in family businesses and trades that they are true professionals at. They've cultivated over decades. They are extremely hard workers, but uh, you know they're great at, at uh, moving b- p- p- uh, offices and homes from one place to another, maybe, but they're not great at technology and digital marketing. So they do what they're good at. We do what we're good at, and it's a partnership. But being in the shoes of our customer has been a real struggle. However, that's just a natural result of us going after a problem that wasn't our own at all. Yeah. And, you know, one challenge with sort of the tops down sort of approach is really just how do you get to conviction and how do you know when, when you should pursue something versus, you know, be insecure that, hey, you know, who am I to, to do this because it's been tried before? Or I don't have expertise in it. My understanding is that the first idea you pursued was something like Mint.com, but then Mint.com came out and you decided not to do that. Uh, how, how did you get to conviction on Thumbtack, you know, Amazon for services, you know, it, it's not like you're the first person to have ever thought about it. How did you get to conviction? There's sort of, this was the why now, or, or you had a different approach than other people. How'd you get conviction that this? Yeah. Is in this, so a couple of things in this brainstorm, we, we came up with a number of ideas and we, the first one was, okay, uh, why don't we create an aggregator uh, for finances you can connect your home loan, your student debt, blah, blah, blah. And then we'll make money by upselling you on better financial products. Uh, and like we were dialed into that. We had been working on it for six weeks. And then Mint.com launched and won TechCrunch 50, which was this big tech prize back then. And we were like so crushed. And that was our first real setback as a company. Uh, but we allowed ourselves to be crushed for a couple days. And then we said, okay, well, actually it was like a good idea. So we're on the right track. And now in retrospect, we are very grateful that we didn't go after that problem because it turns out Thumbtack was a much bigger problem. So when we started building Thumbtack, uh, first, like the intellectual foundation felt behind it. It was like, all right, the time is coming for this to all come online. Uh, it, it, it's not going to be in the future where yellow pages are being delivered to people's doorsteps or uh, movers are stapling their flyers to telephone poles. That's backwards. We're going to have a marketplace in the future. Uh, so, so the intellectual foundation was there. But then on top of it, once we started building, there were so many validation points along the way. Like, oh my gosh, when we got in touch with service professionals and started talking to them in the field, they were so hungry for more leads and more customers. I will jump through as many hoops as you need to find new customers for my painting business. Oh, you have like a website that can help me do this? Uh, Great. Your website sucks, but I am going to like hack it really in a crazy way to make it work for my business. Same thing for consumers. It was just like, you know, we, it was an existing industry. Local services are basically inelastic. It's like you need them. And we knew that that was a gigantic market. So, okay, if we could just figure out a way to build in this, uh, we knew it would work. Uh, and we weren't the first ones to have the idea. So dozens, hundreds of other startups have tried to tackle this space um, in different ways since we started. We're kind of the last one standing with one other named Home Advisor Angie's List. Um, and I'm happy to talk about why that is and why the approach we took was really unique compared to many other companies. Well, let's back up. Let's get into that in a second. First, I want to address uh, Athena Khan's question. Uh, and Athena is building uh, also for a different uh, customer with, with Ladder uh, tackling sort of an enormous 
problem. What do you talk about with the surprises you've encountered when working with a customer base very different from yourself? There have been many surprises. However, the thing I would say I am most surprised is how hard it really is to disentangle your own view of the world and your own experiences from what your customer needs. Uh, We have long struggled to do true user research, to integrate the user research in a productive way into our product. And uh, I think many people at Thumbtack would say that slowed us down over the years. We uh, too often have taken a tech-centric approach or like our own demographic approach to the problem. Okay, uh, uh, one example of this is we uh, have a view of the world that local services, like all other industries, will be mobile and instant one day, okay? So one implication of that is the phone and conversations over the phone are going to become a thing of the past. So for years and years and years, we resisted building into the product an easy way to connect customers with local service professionals by phone. We pushed messaging, we pushed uh, uh, instant transactions and calendaring on the phone, but it turns out the local services industry is built around phone calls, people getting on the phone, talking about their project, what are the nuances, where do you live, what are the price estimate, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so it's only recently that we've built easy ways to talk for people to talk by phone into the product. And I think that's an example of like where our like tech centric ideology or our own demographic got in the way of building the right thing for our customers. It's really hard to overcome. Totally. This You're is muted. Com- yeah, sorry. This combination of uh, Athena and Ashita's uh, questions. Um, yeah, talk about basically how you got this thing to work. How did you hack initial distribution? <laughs> uh, how did you source uh, demand side early customers? And uh, what were sort of the the unlocks or, or secret insight secrets or insights that you that that made this work? Yeah. So let me share how I kind of think of the development of the company over time. I, I think of it as there being four phases, basically. Uh, the first two phases were all about building liquidity in the market in the marketplace. So this is the first four, five, six years of the company's life. When we started out, we said, "Okay, how do you build a marketplace at scale?" Let's look at the current major marketplaces out there: eBay, Amazon, uh, Craigslist. Those were the preeminent marketplaces in the world. Okay, what are two things we notice about them that are in common? One is they are really ugly and janky. Uh, the UIs and UXs stink. The brands kind of stink. Two is they have all the liquidity in the world. They are the world's greatest marketplaces because they have all the supply and all the demand. So the lesson that we took from that is that we are going to focus exclusively on massively scaling supply and demand on marketing, basically. And we're going to punt building a delightful product, a delightful brand, UI and UX for uh, until after we build that core initial liquidity, okay? So that was insight number one. Many other companies, I'd say the predominance of other companies that went after this space, they did the opposite. They focused on building a beautiful brand, a delightful, smooth product, comms and PR in the early days, winning competitions, getting TechCrunch articles, blah, blah, blah. We were like not focused on that stuff at all. To our detriment a little bit at the end of the day, but uh, we, didn't, we didn't think about that stuff at all. So uh, we said, we're going to focus on liquidity. So that's the first 50% of Thumbtack's life. Uh, the first fa- of the two phases there was building supply. We said, okay, how do you sign up supply at scale for zero cost? And what we hit on there was email marketing. So we crawled billions of pages across the internet. Uh, across the internet, we used machine learning classification to try to guess the webs uh, whether the websites we were crawling were service professional websites. And if we thought it was a service pro website, we pulled email and phone number. So uh, we built a huge database of local service professional contact information in the United States. And so we would email like uh, Tom the plumber in Tallahassee. Hey, uh, Tom, there's a customer down the street who needs their sink replaced this weekend. Click on this link. 
to respond to that customer and then register your business for free on Thumbtack. So we did that and we signed up a quarter million people. This is one of those like classic growth hacks. Uh, alongside all of that, we were like deep into Craigslist alongside Airbnb, Uber, Lyft in the early days that were also using Craigslist. Uh, and this was like one of those classic moment in time growth hack slash channels that you could really leverage and then kind of closed off. And there are a number of different growth hacks and channels over the course of time and new technologies come and go like the one we use today, Craigslist, web scraping, email marketing, like that, that wouldn't work today for a variety of reasons. Um, but there's new ones today. So that is how we thought of building supply. And then uh, for the next two, three years, all anybody at the company was focused on, the 12, 15 people at the company were focused on was uh, the same problem except for demand. How do you sign up millions of consumers at scale for little cost? And what we hit on there was SEO. One day, one of the other founders was in a bar in uh, the Castro, and he sat down next to some random person and explained Thumbtack to him. And the guy got out his phone and looked, started looking at Google search results and said, holy cow, you have an enormous SEO opportunity in front of you. And my co-founder, Jonathan, turned to him and said, what's SEO? Uh, so we had never heard of search engine optimization. And this is one classic example of, uh, you know, whether your company succeeds is dependent, yeah, on hard work and smarts, but also enormously on good luck and fortune. Uh, this was one of those moments for us. This guy, he became our first angel investor, our first board outside board member, and he taught us everything we know about SEO. So for the next three years, I led the team to completely architect our SEO strategy, our site architecture, our link building, our content building strategy. And uh, we became world-class in it, best in the world. So that was our scaled growth channel in demand. And it was literally something that like, it was an all out effort and bet for 18 or 24 months. Nobody was focused on anything else. We became world-class at it. And then once we solved that, we moved out onto the next thing. So a couple thoughts. One real takeaway is that what we have done for many years, basically since the beginning of the company's life, is focus on one thing at a time. We've said, okay, what is the one thing that we must become truly world-class at to get this business to the next level. For two or three years, it was signing up supply. For two or three years, it was signing up demand. And then for the following two or three years, the third quartile of the company's period, it was scaling. After having gone three, four years without uh, uh, any recognition, we almost went out of business trying to raise a series A round. We talked to 45 venture capital firms. They all said, no, we weren't getting any recognition on and on. Uh, then supply came together, demand came together. We built a revenue model on top of it. And then in our series B round, Sequoia invested. And it was like, holy cow, we felt like we graduated from Harvard or something. And for the next like 24 months, we went from having raised three or four million dollars to like 250 million dollars. So for that third period of the company's life, it was all about scaling, building the architecture and the systems into the business, migrating from static servers in Dallas to AWS, building our design systems and foundation, our data systems and foundation, our brand, our culture, our recruiting. There were entire quarters where we uh, shipped no product because we were just focused on scaling. So one thing at a time rather than doing a lot of little small bets. Yeah. And and Marco recently published a piece, maybe, maybe it was six months ago, maybe it was a year ago, talking about how you know the journey has had ups and downs and, 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 and a pivot as well. And this sort of segue into Aaron's question, which is, if you could redo that strategy, what would you have done differently? So the journey has had so many ups and downs along the way. There have been months, years, where it's just felt like a world of shit. And it's going to be like that on any journey. And that never goes away. There are, in retrospect, a million things we would have done differently. Uh, you know, at this point, we have a really solid team behind us. We've been doing this for many years now. We have some of the best execs in the world at our side. We ourselves have grown. Um, so hopefully we make fewer mistakes than we used to. Uh, but there are so many mistakes in the early days. Uh, 
there's, there's a couple buckets that come to mind. One is on the business itself. Two is on managing people. Um, so the first on the business itself is back when we started back in 2009 or whatever, every, the whole tech community was focused on user growth. So this was like Twitter, Pinterest, Facebook, blah, blah, blah. They were all growing users and ignoring revenue. Um, uh, that we, so we said, all right, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to grow users and ignore revenue. We went way too long without building a revenue model uh, for ourselves. I think uh, the world is a little different today, not just post-COVID, but previously. Founders have revenue on their mind and know it's in their best interest to build out a revenue model and start earning money um, early. But uh, the earlier you can do that, the better. The more control you have, uh, the more leverage you have um, over investors and on and on. So we delayed for way too long building a revenue model. Uh, So that's one in the business. And then Another thing is people. I am so grateful anytime somebody joins Thumbtack, takes the risk for even a period of their journey. And an enormous portion of my best friends uh, are people that we've hired at Thumbtack. But people come and go. And uh, people are right at certain stages of the company and not right at other stages of the company. So many of our biggest mistakes, I would say, um, I think everybody would agree, are uh, moments where we've kind of like, kept somebody in the um, business for a little too long or kind of um, felt hesitant to have that, t- that tough conversation with somebody about like, okay, here's what I'm seeing and here are the things, here, here is what I'm hearing from you and seeing from you and here's kind of like my expectations and how they differ a little bit. Uh, let's talk about that in a helpful, uh, productive way. Uh, instead, in the early days, we were either risk of uh, uh, a conflict averse and we didn't have those conversations or we approached them in the wrong way. We didn't know how to do it. So I would have gotten coaching much earlier to have those types of conversations. And I would and I would have uh, just had them much earlier and more quickly. Yeah. Uh, I want to uh, ask Macy uh, Huang's question, which is on SEO. And I remember uh, many years ago we were chatting. You said you'd just gotten back from, I think it was Germany or something, where there was a Stocktoberfest, which is SEO, some SEO conference, you know, combined with Oktoberfest. <laughs> so uh, what's the difference between being good at SEO and being truly great at SEO? such that you're attending Stocktoberfest. <laughs> yeah, SE Oktoberfest is this group of like elite SEO people uh, that's held every year in Germany. And in a great, in a great change, unexpected in careers, uh, that's, that's uh, part of where my career went. So to be truly great at SEO, it, it, it basically requires taking a bet on the channel that most people are uh, not in a position or very reluctant to take. The reason I say that is because to really see results in SEO, it takes 12, 18, 24 months. So you have to be both in a cash position to be able to take that bet, invest significant resources during that time before seeing any results, and you have to have the conviction that it's the right, it's a right channel for your business. It's not right for every business. So our outside counsel and advisor in particular gave us that ultimate conviction like, okay, you have an enormous opportunity here. Trust me. I've done this before. If you do everything I say, like, um, this is going to work. Uh, and then this, the, so we had the conviction, the, and it was, it was, we bet the company on it. Had it not worked out, uh, we would have failed and got under. The second piece of it was then, okay, like what, are the actual mechanics of this and what what's the team you have to build behind it okay so site architecture that's the easiest part that's an eng dev technical job of building the right url structure to make sure that your site is optimized for googlebot and crawling uh links link building is still extremely important there's kind of a myth out there that google has tried to abstract away link building from being effective that's not true. It's still highly effective, um, but you have to do it in the right way that uh, uh, is high quality. So really quick example of something insane that we did to build links was we said, uh, what can we do that will get the absolute highest quality links from the most reputable sources on the internet? And so we brainstormed and came up with a survey of our small businesses. We surveyed 250,000 businesses about uh, how friendly they thought their state or city was to small businesses. We 
uh, partnered with a reputable nonprofit and their PhD economists to work on this survey with us. We then built a data visualization to highlight these results. And it wasn't just one, it was a data visualization for every state's results, the top 80 metros results. And we put that visualization strategically into our site architecture so that links would go deep into our site architecture. Then we spun up a team of 30 people in the Philippines to build a database of 40,000 email addresses of uh, three people at all 8,000 newspapers in the radio stations, all 2,000 TV stations, the president and press person at all 2,000 chambers of commerce in the country. And we wrote 130 press releases, one for every state and city. And then over the course of nine weeks, we emailed the results, the local results of this survey to all of these people. And it was a huge bet. I invested five months in it full time. We had no idea if this was going to work. And on launch day, we sent out the first of emails to like the first, you know, Alabama. And it turned into this media sensation. So, you know, the mayor of Nashville is being interviewed on their local TV affiliate 6 p.m. saying, you know, why did you only get a D plus in Thumbtack's small business survey? What's going on? Or congratulations to the San Antonio mayor who got an A plus. And, you know, every year since then, we've had a link from taw.gov governor's website to our Utah webpage. Um, and that, for example, was something crazy we did to link build. I can tell similar stories on the content um, creation side, which is the third pillar of SEO. Uh, thank you for, for, for the overview. I want to switch gears a little bit to, to fundraising, uh, to sort of rephrase uh, Wally Grzynski's question a little bit. I mean, you had 45 people reject you at the Series A, and then Sequoia, you do your Series B. What, what did you learn about successful fundraising, or was really just 99.9% of it that it started working? So... 90% of a fundraise is timing relative to your uh, revenue growth. The greater your revenue growth, the higher leverage you're going to have, the more interest you're going to have, the lower your revenue growth, the lower your uh, leverage. So that is the ultimate determinant of fundraising. Within that, there are uh, better practices and worse practices around structuring your process around how to get intros to VCs. But uh, at the end of the day, it's about substance underneath the hood rather than kind of like the process you're running. So I'm not sure I have a ton of advice to provide about that. You know, I just look at like, and uh, I just, I guess one great strength of our founding team is we all have very complementary skill sets. So I, for example, thrive in the weeds. I love building. I love having my headphones on, organizing in Excel spreadsheets, analytics, building teams and systems. Um, Jonathan is a great like team manager and motivator. Marco is a world's great inspirer and communicator. And so having him as CEO has benefited the company enormously for a variety of reasons. Um, one critical one has been in pitching uh, Thumbtack. So Though 90% of it is the underlying business growth, like 10% or another 20 or 30% or whatever is how, how you tell the story and the conviction and confidence with which you tell your story and your persuasive ability. Like as crazy as it sounds, yeah, a lot of it is numbers, but a lot of it is human. And so if you have someone on your team who is a great salesperson and persuader, that is an, of enormous benefit to you. And I think can often go under-recognized as a talent in the tech community because in tech, it's all about like numbers and data. How, how did Marco slash, slash you guys convince people early on or even just respond to the criticism of, hey, what do you guys really know about, about this industry? Like, uh, Yeah, so people, you know, the conventional wisdom in building a marketplace when we started was, Everybody knows uh, the way to bootstrap a marketplace is to start in a specific category like Amazon did in books or start in a specific geography like Yelp did in San Francisco. You guys are doing every category in every geography. You're boiling the ocean 
you're spreading yourselves way too thin. Your product sucks. It's never gonna. You're never gonna be able to make a good product because you're trying to chew off way, bite off way more than you can chew. And you know, in many ways, they were right. So uh, we didn't have experience in this industry. We were biting off way more than we could chew uh, in many ways. Uh, so our product suffered for many years. That said, it turns out in retrospect, the only way to build a broad uh, local services writ large that's across so many categories was to do this like mass category and geography approach with a minimum viable product. One thing that people didn't quite understand was though our product wasn't great, it was good enough to uh, be useful to a huge portion of people. And so we kind of just had to convince the world through results um, that what we were doing was, was right. The reason it was the right move for this specific marketplace is because the cadence of use of any particular service is very low. It's like, you know, I had a house cleaner growing up and uh, we had one house cleaner in 30 years. So it's like, you can't, it's hard to build a marketplace around hiring one thing every 30 years, similar with like weddings. You know, you're getting married once, maybe twice in life. You need an electrician once every few years. So you can't build a house cleaning or a wedding specific or an electric specific marketplace because the the frequency of use is too low. But when you aggregate them all together, the average American household uses a thumbtack service 8, 10, 12, 14 times in a year. And that's plenty of use. Totally. Aaron uh, asks... Is it ever too early to optimize for SEO, especially with 18 to 24 month turnaround time on results? If SEO is um, a, a good channel for your business, then the most important thing to do from day one is build your site architecture in a way that is understandable by Googlebot. The number one problem I see early stage companies get into is they, you know, e-commerce or other marketplaces, they build their site without an eye to SEO. They build it for the product that they're building for their users. And they get 12, 18, 24 months into it. Suddenly, their entire product, all their email marketing, their tech stack, their code is optimized for the site architecture they've built. And then they go back and they say like, okay, now we want to invest in SEO. And step number one in SEO is building an easily understandable uh, site architecture, like URL structure for Googlebot. You're telling me I have to like totally get rid of my my old URL uh, architecture and instead uh, do one that's worse for our users, but is right for Googlebot. Like get out of here. You know, the team is then split about it. There's a huge sunk cost in what you've already built. Is the bet really worth making? Um, so I think even if you're unsure that SEO is right for you and that it is the right channel, a very early thing you can do is make sure that your URL structure is built for, uh, for Googlebot. Totally. Quick follow-up to that. Is there a decision framework or model used when deciding SEO or, or just conviction? Yeah, it's all about keyword volume and whether there are high intent keywords um, for your product. Thumbtack is built for SEO. It's like the number one place people go to hire a lawn care professional is Google. It's like lawn care Toledo. Um, So it was a no brainer for us. The Google keyword tool could have validated for that for us uh, just by typing in all the keywords and telling us, you know, these are high volume keywords. So, but there are other companies that like, there's like, people don't go to Google to search for, for uh, your service. It's like, you know, for Uber and Lyft in the early days, people weren't going to Google really and typing in like taxi service. It was like, they were looking at the yellow pages for the local phone number. They like just had it taped to their wall. So it was low volume keywords. SEO is not a big part of their, their initial strategy. So it's all about search volume and and whether the keywords are high intent keywords. So like needs to be at the bottom of the hiring funnel, like the further up the hiring funnel it it is like how to design 
a or how, how to like remodel my kitchen or what how much does it cost to hire a math tutor those are lower intent and yeah we have pages built for them but it's a really small part of our business um, it's part of why house for example they have built uh, they built like an enormous business on SEO but the keywords they were targeting turned out to be lower intent it was like house like design and remodel porn and all this stuff um and it turned out to be a little bit lower intent so they pivoted a little bit to building products rather than selling services yeah you were talking about the third pillar uh i believe it was content um and you said you can get a little bit more into that could you unpack it just a bit more when google is crawling your website it has to translate the words on your page to what it can understand so the words on your page have to match uh, these keywords that people are searching for. And yeah, you don't want to like stuff your page with keywords or anything like that, but, uh, the words on your page need to be optimized for the keywords that you are targeting. Uh, so what we did was we built, uh, hundreds of thousands of, we called them landing pages that were, uh, geo keyword landing pages. So this was like, you know, we took a list of all the top 4,000 geos in the United States and then a list of all the top Two, three thousand local service keywords, and then we matched them and multiplied them together, and we had like a million pages or whatever. And then we needed unique content for each of those pages. Um, so we did a bunch of things. Half of it was service professionals who uploaded their own content onto Thumbtack, and we would make sure that it was unique and um, we surfaced that. Um, so our supply strategy turned to turned out to be a huge engine of our SEO demand. Um, but then another part of it was building unique content ourselves. So part of that was building a huge team in the Philippines. It got up to like a thousand people at one point. It was all work from home. Turns out that this massive operational and managerial challenge of hiring a thousand people who all work from home, onboarding, uh, recruiting them, onboarding them, training them. QA, managing them, building a culture that they could thrive in, in service of first this content, but then over the course of time, we've used them for a million other things, was an, like, an unbelievable strategic advantage that nobody we know out there has kind of ever replicated without that huge team of very uh, low cost, but dedicated and great talent. Uh, Thumbtack wouldn't exist today, and it was a core part of our SEO strategy for many years. Yeah. You, earlier in this conversation, you talked about you broke all the rules for marketplaces. Are you, is that sort of, you know, you're, are you the exception that proves the rule, or do you think that the uh, rules should be different as it relates to evaluating marketplace businesses from an investment or entrepreneur perspective? I guess my takeaway is that marketplaces are overgeneralized. And there are some dynamics that are specific to each one, supply acquisition, demand acquisition, matching. But like once you, once you get into the specifics of acquiring supply, of acquiring demand, of matching the supply with the demand, of what is the revenue model? Like basically every single marketplace is different. And it's almost impossible to learn from other marketplaces and apply it to your own marketplace. The, the way we built those early mechanics that worked, it was all testing and failing and stumbling and iterating. We didn't over-intellectualize things because we couldn't. It was like we were surprised at like, you know, 80% of our A-B tests. We were like, we would do pool, uh, office pool bets on like which A-B tests are going to work and which aren't. And it was like, you know, we were almost all wrong for almost all of the A-B tests. And it was impossible to anticipate ex-ante what users would like and what they wouldn't. So, you know, I think in marketplaces, this like, uh, at least in the early stages in the mechanics, this design first thinking about like Steve Jobs, iPhone type thing. It's like, it, it, I haven't seen that work for these early marketplaces. It's been a lot about just like, grueling, hard, you know, 1%, 2% um, improvements on like the core supply, demand, matching revenue model mechanics that you, that you figure out. 
maybe segue into, I want you to talk a bit about the sort of emotional, you know, managing your own psychology portion of, of managing sort of the, the rise and, and the, the, the fall of the ups and the downs. You wrote the, this Quora blog post. That's one of the most viral blog posts on Quora in history. And we uh, about that exact thing. Maybe you can just talk about one or one or two, uh, you know, learnings uh, or tidbits here that may be relevant for the audience. Yeah. So the core post, it, it kind of talks about how going after the dream of building a scaled startup is romantic and it requires dreamers and optimists to do it because reason tells you no every step of the way. So there's this romantic element to it where it's like you're longing for, you're lusting after certain things, you're longing to be matched with the premier VC. There are these, you know, beautiful icons out there that we all look up to in tech. And basically the best any of us can do is keep those as icons very romantically, but just work one day at a time, one foot in front of the other to get there. It's very hard to have these hopes and dreams and always be watching Elon Musk and reading his tweets and looking at, you know, Steve Jobs and Jack Dorsey. And listen, like, if you are on a slide in a playground in San Francisco and you're with your friends and you come up with an idea when you've slid down that slide to create a 140 character messaging platform and you immediately go back to your office and code up v1 and like a month later it goes viral globally and suddenly you're jack dorsey like congratulations but 99.9 percent of us that's not who we are we build it and they don't come so we have to sit there and market it and do the grunt work over years and hire great people dial in our processes and grind. That is what we have done. And it's a long journey, but honestly, I don't see it done that many other ways. Awesome. That's a perfect place to perfect place to wrap. Uh, and that embodies uh, you and what you've done at, at Thumbtack. Uh, with that in mind, if, if we can give a digital uh, round of applause to Sander, thank you so much for, for joining this, uh, this live chat. Thanks everyone. Great to be here. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.